Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, South Africa begins its two-year term on the UN Security Council. How much will human rights shape its votes? Next, we'll discuss the start of Gambian President Barrow's third year in office. Is he delivering on his pledges? Plus, we examine the role of journalism in Africa. We have an in-depth conversation with Rodney Say, publisher and editor of the Liberian Front Page African newspaper. We discuss innovation and the impact of African journalism in an era of fake news and assaults on media freedoms. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. This month, South Africa will start a two-year term as a non-permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. Notably, it will be its first while under President Cyril Ramaphosa. We are humbled by the confidence that's been placed in us, and we will make sure that we execute the responsibility that has been placed on our shoulders. South Africa's commitment to foreign policy that emphasizes human rights was badly frayed under Ramaphosa's predecessor, Jacob Zuma. South Africa allied itself with Russia and China and pledged to withdraw from the International Criminal Court. Is this a new opportunity for South Africa to recover, regain its moral standing? Joining me today to discuss South Africa's foreign policy is the director of the Africa program at Freedom House, John Temin, Siobhan O'Grady from the Washington Post, and front page Africa's publisher and editor, Rodney Say. John, there was significant disappointment with South Africa's foreign policy under Zuma. You recently published an article on our website on Ramaphosa's foreign policy priorities. Can you walk us through why you think a change could be afoot? Going back to the presidency of Nelson Mandela, South Africa really took a strong position on most issues concerning democratic governance and human rights. And obviously that builds partly on the incredible story of Mandela and of overcoming apartheid that really changed under recent President Zuma. And the whole program of state capture that Zuma oversaw extended to foreign policy as well. And South Africa's decision making in international bodies and their bilateral relations were deeply affected by narrow interests. So the question now is how interested in he is, is he in changing this and what's his capacity to change it? He comes from a strong foreign policy background. And generally speaking, it seems like his inclinations are to return things to where they were under Mandela in terms of support for democratic governance and human rights. Uh, but he is constrained because, as you're noting, the, the ANC uh, has some pretty conservative positions on some of these things. And there is a good deal of, of skepticism of the West and of a sort of regime change type agenda. So the jury is out in terms of how much freedom Ramaphosa will have to, to push where he seems to want to go. Uh, there is one small uh, encouraging sign just recently, which is that the new foreign minister, who also seems aligned with Ramaphosa in her thinking, announced South Africa is going to change its vote at the UN General Assembly on this upcoming resolution concerning Myanmar. Previously, South Africa had said they were going to abstain on this resolution uh, condemning gross human rights abuses in Myanmar. Now they're going to vote in favor. I mean, for me, the question is, where are they going to vote on African issues? About 70% of all Security Council deliberations have to do with Africa. Uh, we have plenty of hot spots that we have to think about in, in Mali and Congo. Siobhan, you cover the continent. What are the issues that you think South Africa could or should take a lead on? 
I think uh, South Sudan is one of, uh, obviously, the biggest hotspots in Africa right now. And we're seeing, um, just in the past week or so, an increase in giant uptick in sexual violence. Um, Nikki Haley uh, had tried to make South Sudan one of her issues, but I think that there will be expectations that South Africa, as an African member of the Security Council, will have a responsibility to weigh in on the conflict there as well. I think that's a great point. South Africans in my view, have felt pretty burned by some of the foreign policy adventurism uh, of, of President Zuma. He deployed troops to the Central African Republic in 2013. It led to 13 dead. Um, there was a view from many South Africans uh, questioning why they were in the Central African Republic. Was it about uh, the um, investments of, of South African elites? And I think most South Africans just want their government to focus on domestic problem sets. On one hand, you've got a citizenry who would like him to be focusing on the economic issues at home. And then there's the broader African picture. South Africa sees itself as a leader on the continent. They're going to want to use a Security Council position as a way to rehearse uh, for a permanent position on the Security Council. Rodney, as a Liberian, as a West African, how do you think about South Africa's claim uh, to represent the continent? I think the whole uh, issue of uh, apartheid had put them in the downtrodden end of things in terms of where we are as a continent. I think it's still that vacuum for them to feel like they still lead the continent. But I think it's still a struggle for them because um, although they wanted to supposedly want to reach its consciousness continent, it's the issue of whether uh, the governance structure in South Africa has been given them that relevance, the need to take charge of the continent. I think it's very, very difficult in terms of representation for them to really take control of uh, things and represent each and every country on the continent. Well, and Nigeria probably has a view, right? In any sense, West African has a very strong presence. And I think Nigeria, if anything, should be the one, not South Africa. People tend to quickly uh, lump everyone together as one you know, continent. Although um, Nigeria, South Africa, the powerhouses of Africa, there's still a lot of neglect in, on the continent. And representation should be not just for because your size is big, but it should be because you're able to articulate the issues of all the con- countries on the continent. And I think that's where the vacuum lies. Yeah, and I think that's a really important metric. John? Judd, if I can just return to your point about domestic policy in South Africa, clearly Ramaphosa's first priorities are domestic, and clearly amongst those priorities, economic growth is absolutely paramount. But I think the issues of domestic policy and foreign policy are not disconnected here, because part of Ramaphosa's challenge is that he has to attract substantial inward investment into South Africa. He can't overcome these economic challenges otherwise. And so that question of investment links to South Africa's reputation in the world and whether South Africa is going to be seen again as a country in good standing in the international community. I really like the way that you connected that. And there's a hot debate right now about Saudi Arabia uh, following the Khashoggi murder because South Africa was supposed to have a tie-up with Danel, the South African arms manufacturer. And that's live issue, right, John? Yeah, it is. And so Ramaphosa faces this additional question of whose money is he willing to accept? Let's move to the Gambia. This month marks the start of Gambian President Adama Barrow's third year as president. Celebrations erupted in streets of Banjul on Friday with Barrow supporters gathering outside Barrow's house to celebrate the election victory. I'm really happy and glad for the new Gambia. Where everyone is glad, everyone is happy with the celebrations and the jubilations that's going on. 
As we discussed in episode two, Barrow defeated longtime dictator Yaya Jame at the ballot box and with the help of regional forces, particularly Senegal, assumed power of this very small West African country. Rodney, you lived in the Gambia. You actually conducted the first interview with Yaya Jame after he took power. Can you tell us a little bit about the significance of the transition between Jame and Barrow? I think Jame was one of those <laughs> African dictators who thought he could rule forever. And I remember in 1994, July 22nd, 1994, when I interviewed him, he was a skinny guy, you know, with, he had four of his lieutenants near him. Uh, one of them Two of them are dead already. Um, I think Singate, Edward Singate is still alive, around. He's uh, now in ECOWAS. And I think the fact that he managed to live, I remember interviewing me asking him, are you going to be a dictator? He said, no, I'm going to turn over power in a few months. It tells you how the continent is full of people who make promises they can't keep. And I think a lot of Gambians were yearning for change, but they were afraid because of he was because he was who he was, who Jamin was. But I think that the, when he election took place, I think he underestimated Gambian people. I think he really thought he was going to win elections, you know. And when he lost, he didn't. He couldn't accept it. It tells you that Africa is no longer patient. Before you could have the likes of uh, Museveni, uh, Mugabe, you know, rule for years without question. But now people are standing up. And although people see the new government in Gambia as something that they can share because Jamal is gone, at the same time, they don't want to go back to the same thing that happened before. They're putting Barry in check and say, look, you have to do things the right way. So I think he needs to be very cautious of Gambia's history and where he's going and where he wants to go. You know, you give me an opportunity to say two of my favorite factoids. One is that two, since um, 2014, we've seen more than 25 uh, leadership transitions in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, some of those have been uh, a dude hands over to a, a appointed successor, but about half of those have been incumbent party or incumbent party defeats. I mean, it's really remarkable. We're talking about a number of transitions that really mirror the end of the Cold War. And second is people power. More people have gone on the streets in sub-Saharan Africa in 2015 and 2016 than in any other period since the end of the Cold War. And so I think the kinds of issues that you're raising, Rodney, about um, demands of constituents and intolerance for sit-tight presidents is really an increasingly important phenomenon. Now, I don't want to minimize how important this is uh, with Barrow taking over from from President Jame, but almost immediately, as you alluded to, he's fighting uh, with his allies, the coalition around him, uh, particularly um, the head of his party, Darbo. And there's calls for him to step down, uh, a view that he has reneged on his pledge to only serve three years. Now, Siobhan, I know that you have looked at this issue. You, you reported in the past about how female activists were sidelined. You know, what does this episode tell us about Barrow's challenges? Yeah, I think as Rodney mentioned, uh, Jame was just such an extreme figure that um, anyone in comparison to him sort of seemed more moderate. And there were a lot of promises that were made uh, during that initial transition period that uh, now I think Barrow is going to be held accountable for whether or not he's actually following through on them. At a certain point, you have to bring more to the table than just not being Jame. It wasn't just about getting Jame out of power. It was about, you know, revitalizing the economy and all sorts of things that fell under the wayside with Jame in power. John, what is Freedom House's view on where Gambia is? 
Well, it's notable because we do our annual Freedom in the World ratings. We've done that since 1973. And the gain that Gambia made last year in our ratings is the largest single year gain any country anywhere has ever made. Wow. Uh, so it's a truly remarkable thing that happened there. And really, very few people saw it coming. I think the one point I would add is that this is really interesting from the perspective of donors and foreign assistance because it's a pretty small country. Uh, it's a country where you would think donors would be able to make a significant impact, and it is such a positive story, and it got, relatively speaking, such a significant amount of attention that I think it's a real big test for can the rush of donor money and interest and attention actually help change some of the fundamentals and actually help change the course that a country is going. But I feel like the attention span has already moved on, right? The the Gambia story is, is not the one we're focusing on anymore. I, I think the real issue, the bigger issue, I think, is that Washington doesn't have time for Africa now because of Trump. And it's affecting, it's a trigger effect to everybody else. So the donor money is not flowing to Gambia because I think people, the attention is not as there as it was before. I think it's going to be a major issue down the road. I think it's not just Gambia, but the countries around Gambia will have problems. If you look at the issue in the Congo with the new case of Ebola, the funding has been very low compared to previous years. It tells you that the world is shifting direction to somewhere else, so it's very, very difficult for us. Yeah. Well, and it's an important point that Rodney made in terms of sticking with the success stories. You know, certainly during my time in government, and I think for you, Judd, as well, there was always a real desire to get senior policymakers to spend some time on the places that are doing well and to go there just to check in and to say, you know, you are doing well and, and it's appreciated and it's noted. That almost never happened because of busy schedules and so forth. Javon, you and, and Rodney are in journalism. What's the expression? If it bleeds, it leads. I, I hate to say it, but it's often true in government, too. The top of the inbox is the conflict, the crisis. And we just, it's so difficult under any administration uh, to focus on, on these important issues. I think you also noted earlier that people power is becoming, you know, more of a popular movement in a number of different countries. And for example, I, I think just this week, uh, protesters have taken back to the streets in Togo. That was a, a story that didn't get enough attention. I spent around 10 days in Togo last spring interviewing political prisoners and sort of trying to get a perspective on on that place. It's a small country, but it has a lot of angry people in it. Um, and it's another place where if you don't keep an eye on it, it could definitely explode. Well, here at CSIS, we're going to try to keep elevating the positive stories. And particularly, I think the resilience of some of these protest movements really require uh, some more engagement. I want to talk a little bit about journalism. I think we're at a crossroads right now. On one hand, there's this really exciting innovation that's happening on the continent. We're seeing uh, organizations like Africa Check out of South Africa uh, calling out uh, presidential candidates for falsehoods. We're seeing journalists in the Gambia uncovering corruption. Uh, there's this piece by these Cameroonian journalists that figured out how long President Bia has been out of country, both a combination of archival work and then just really good sleuthing. And yet we're still at a place that being a journalist is a dangerous profession. We have the impression that if you are not singing the praises of a particular individual, either the government or the pro-independence fighters, or even the opposition, you are considered as an enemy. You know, you face intimidation, physical violence, arrests. Um, I think more than anyone, you know what it's like to call leaders to account, uh, but also to suffer for this vital work that you're doing. Um, you've been threatened, arrested. Uh, 
uh, fined $1.5 million uh, for your reporting. And you just published this fantastic memoir, uh, Journalist on Trial, Fighting Corruption, Media Muzzling, and a 5,000-Year Prison Sentence in Liberia. I read it in a couple of days. It's a page turner. It's fantastic. And I was hoping, Rodney, uh, you could tell us a little bit about the state of journalism in Liberia and why you became a reporter. Well, I became a reporter for the same reason everyone does, I think, for a good story. And I think uh, growing up in Liberia, I grew up in a time when the country was going through a lot of crisis, so it motivated me. And my uncle, my great-uncle, Albert Port, was a very strong um, pamphleteer and advocate. He was very involved in um, fighting against the system, and I modeled my life after him. Um, but now we came to a time when things are different. Most countries in Africa now are leaning towards calling us fake news reporters. And there's not a day go by that one African president would tell a reporter, a journalist, that it's fake news because of Trump. Telling a story has become difficult. I learned the hard way. I, I mean, I, I went by the book. I did a government audit report that came out, published it. <laughs> in any country in the world, that would be like, you know, just a regular story. But for me... People saw me as a target, and they wanted to lock me up for good. 5,000-year sentence was very, I think it was very demeaning, um, very bad conditions in prison. Um, a lot of my colleagues are in prison around the world. Some of them are dead. I could have been dead, you know. And so I think journalism in Africa is very, very difficult. In Liberia, the new government, since they took over, we've been shut down once. My staff was thrown in jail in January. And so it's a recurring process that never stops. And they see you as an enemy because you report the truth. And you try to you know, hold them accountable for what they're doing. And what they fail to realize is that nowadays, most Western countries are keen to see donor money put in the right place. And if we report in those things, they think as they think we're against the government, or we enemies of the state, as Trump will say. When I heard that phrase from Trump, I could identify with it because we've been hearing that for years. You know, when I came in the states, uh, 1996, um, I got asylum. I, I was thinking, just think about it the other day. Whether if I had come to the states now, whether mm. I would get asylum because of my, <laughs> my reporting. America's now seeing what we went through in Africa all these years. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's a study, but I, I'm actually quite interested in how many African governments are are parroting some of uh, the president's comments about fake news. I know Museveni's done it at least once. Nigeria has done it. Nigeria, Nigeria has done it. I think Burundi Liberia, as well. Liberia has Cameroon done it a few also times. has been using the term fake news recently. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll do it, or maybe John will do it, or maybe <laughs> some, one of our other institutions, but I think it would be really powerful. Rodney, in your book, there's a line where you say, the news business is a very ruthless one. And you talk about how money and intimidation can undercut the credibility. Uh, there's a recent result from Afrobarometer, the very reputable polling, that talked about that four out of 10 Africans now say the media often or always abuses its freedom by knowingly printing or saying things that they know is untrue. And this is a new finding relative to the previous years. John, how do you make sense of it? Well, now, add to that as well, part of their finding, too, is increasing popular support for government crackdown on media um, and increasing sentiment that government needs to regulate media somehow. Uh, and I think that's concerning. Uh, you look at when you break that down by particular countries, a couple of the countries that are really leading in that sentiment of need for government oversight are 
Tanzania and Uganda, those are countries where we're seeing a broad rollback of governance and basic rights in general. But I think going back to this narrative of fake news and the you know, the awful language about um, journalists as enemy of the state, uh, it plays into this idea that government has to be forceful somehow in, in flexing its muscles and in, and in um, creating some control over these outlets. Uh, but that's really the antithesis of where so much of Africa is going in terms of increasing rights and increasingly uh, good governance. I, I think also people tend to forget that the threat against journalists in Africa is not that different from what happened in America. Mm. I'm sure you, you have experience in Washington Post when you write a story, the comment sections, people threaten you all the time. I mean, vile threats against you. And people take it lightly, but I think those threats are serious against journalists. And it's just a matter of time before you see things happening. It's already started in some newspapers' offices that are being attacked. In Liberia, for example, the reason we're talking is because we refuse to be press singers. And that's what the government wants you to be. And if you don't do that, then you're enemy of the state. Yeah, so how do we, how do we think about this? International media is under pressure. Um, African media continues to be under pressure. You know, in your book, Rodney, you talk about how the BBC and the New York Times and other papers of record intervened when you were uh, threatened. Um, in what ways, Siobhan, can the international community protect and defend and promote African journalism? You know, are, do you have, are there places where this has really worked well? Yeah, I think um, some of what Rodney was just mentioning about uh, the phenomenon of fake news growing on the African continent, I think while there have been increasing instances of journalists being accused of writing false information purposely, there also has been a lot of disinformation and and false information circulating on Twitter and Facebook, and that social media um, can often be sort of confused for the media. And I'm not sure if that could explain any of the results in the Afrobarometer um, poll, because information is just being shared in so many different ways, whether it's on WhatsApp or Facebook or Twitter, and it can be hard for people to verify. I think uh, we're lucky as journalists to have organizations like the Committee to Protect Journalists um, and other organizations that advocate for journalists who are in distress or being targeted. Um, but it's been concerning to me. I've talked to journalists, colleagues from outlets who are working for local papers in different parts of Africa who have told me they're having to make decisions sometimes about what line they're going to walk because they often feel like their reporting could put them in danger. And, and like Rodney noted, which I think is really powerful, that um, some of the work that he was targeted for, you know, anywhere else, it, it might just be another story. Looking at this administration's priorities in Africa, trade investment, rule of law, you know, thinking about China's malign interests. And I think they're missing a part by, uh, one, disparaging and discrediting media here in the United States and abroad uh, with the cause of fake news. But they're also missing an opportunity to um, really sort of uncover poor behavior by governments and poor behavior by foreign powers, uh, that that's exactly what you would want a journalist to do. Rodney, how do you think about that? And maybe ask more broadly, what should the United States do to support journalism in Africa? I think the irony here is funny that the media, the Western media, for example, has not been able to solve this problem with the fake news. African leaders are now saying fake news, but they can't tell you what the fake news is. Trump says it every day, he can tell you what it is. But it's easy to find. If you go on social media, you'll see something like a Washington Post, WordPress. That that's not Washington Post. That's mm. Somebody created that. It's a trend that's happening that nobody's picking up on. I haven't seen a report about this 
in any Western newspaper. Mm. But that's the problem. That's that's the real fake news. That's not us. So I think that the Western countries, America, for example, can really take the lead in this, uh, you know, identify this stuff instead of identifying the legitimate news organizations, fake news, but focus on those real fake news things that are happening. Facebook, for example, has been under threat because allowing these kind of things to surface. And then governments can force them to do better in terms of how they allow these things to go on their pages. I'm, I'm really gratified at least that Facebook and AFP are teaming up to look at um, some of the Nigerian fake news. So I think that's a step in the positive direction. Um, I think because in the United States we focus on Facebook so much that we're not spending a lot of time thinking about WhatsApp uh, in Africa, which is probably more popular. I think WhatsApp is commissioning it, but there will be a study looking at WhatsApp in the Nigerian election as well. So uh, uh, Nigeria may be a laboratory to think about how do we have better policies. John Siobhan, any parting shots? Well, if I can add, I think there is no better investment in terms of bang for the buck than investing in investigative journalism. Uh, And sometimes that is just basic shoe leather, roll up your sleeves, investigative journalism. Uh, A lot of it happening offline, I think. What frustrates me a lot about the current narrative around foreign assistance is there is such a commitment to monitoring and evaluation and to showing tangible results That's important in many ways, but the pendulum swings too far. And I worry that it crowds out the basic investment in journalists, the people who do journalism, and those people who are incredibly brave and willing to be out there uncovering things that the people need to know about. And so I really hope that there is an ability to maintain those basic investments in people. And it's intangible and it's hard to monitor. But Judd, you were noting some of the incredible journalists working on the continent who are uncovering remarkable things. There's no substitute for that. Yeah. And I think just your mention of Nigeria made me think about um, the conflict happening there in the Middle Belt. When I was reporting in Nigeria last year, I often would see photos circulating on social media that would show you know, entire fields full of dead cows or um, photos of, of people who had been killed lying on the ground um, in some kind of village that would be hard to identify where exactly it was. But sometimes you'd look closer at a photo and you'd actually see that there was... Um, some shop in the background where the writing was in French on the shop. And of course, it's clearly not actually Nigeria, but this information is spreading and everyone is worked up about a specific issue. Then I think it's easy for people to not look closely at at what they're actually seeing and analyze it. And that's how false information spreads. If I can just make one final point to tie this back to where our conversation started on South Africa. When you talk to South Africans about how did South Africa get through the Zuma years and how did their institutions emerge relatively unscathed after the Zuma years, they point to three things. They talk about the judiciary, they talk about civil society, and they talk about journalists. And everything that journalists and the media were able to do to uncover and expose state capture and really raise the pressure on Zuma, and that had a lot to do with the transition that happened there just a year ago. John, that's an excellent point. I want to thank uh, my guest uh, for coming on today. I want to highly recommend Rodney's book. Uh, It's a fantastic read. Uh, You want a firsthand account of uh, what the life of a journalist is, and particularly one of of Rodney's caliber. Um, I highly recommend it. So thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.